Okay, we're two weeks into our, our series, one week into our 30-day challenge. What would you do if you knew you only had one month uh, to live? So, what would you do? What have you been doing? How's it been going? What have you changed? What have you done differently? What have you thought about? Because you've asked the question. How are you responding differently because you're counting the days? You're living with the recognition that my days don't just span out endlessly, but there will be a full stop, there will be an end, and so I'm counting my days and therefore seeking to make my days count. One day this week, unexpectedly, I had Evan for lunch, which is, I didn't eat him, I mean I had lunch with him, uh, and uh, we took our sandwiches as we do. But it was just an ordinary day in an ordinary week, and in that sense, it was an ordinary lunch. But if I've got 30 days to live, then nothing's ordinary. There are no longer any ordinary days and ordinary weeks. And if if there was only 30 days, then this would not be an ordinary lunch either. So we took our sandwiches and we sat on the top of the castle in one of the town's parks and we ate our sandwiches there. Yesterday, just an ordinary Saturday in an ordinary week, but... If I really did only have 30 days, there would be no more ordinary Saturdays or Sundays for that matter. So we went, uh, as uh, well, most of us, the older children, went with me to a pop concert and I won the Coolest Dad of the Year award. And while we're on Cool Dads, I've got to tell you about Mr. Coles. Mr. Coles was one of the teachers that we saw that teacher's evening a couple of weeks ago that really upset me. Remember that one? And uh, because I was being sensitive about my age and all of that, Mr. Coles later said to Rachel, your dad looks young. Thank you. So suddenly, geography's back on the curriculum. It's a fantastic choice for GCSE. He looks about six, by the way. But hey, he thought I looked young. So that was cool. So nothing's ordinary anymore. No ordinary days, no ordinary Saturdays. You might say, okay, sitting on the top of a castle in a town and actually going to a pop concert where the words weren't even Christian isn't a very spiritual thing to do, is it? No. Or maybe yes. You see, at the heart of God is a relationship. We are good Western, excuse me, we are good Western Christians, which means we emphasize the unity of God. We believe in one God. And so the Trinity, the three of them, troubles us a little bit because we want to stand on Augustine's teaching all those years ago and say there was one God. And there is one God. I'm not suggesting any different this morning. But the one God revealed himself right at the beginning of the Bible and all the way through as three people in such close relationship that they are one. Don't ask me to explain that. If I could explain everything about God, then I would be God and he wouldn't. And that is a scary thought. So I have to accept I can't understand everything there is to understand about God. There is one God, but in that God that is so united, so one, there are three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. At the heart, not therefore of the universe, but at the heart of God himself, there is relationship. They are one. And so at the beginning of the Bible, the words go, let us... The three of us, Father, Son, and Spirit, make man, make mankind, male and female, in our image, in our likeness. We are nothing without relationship. That's how we've been made. And if you're reading the One Month to Live book, you will read tomorrow, right at the beginning, these words. When all is said and done, relationships are all that really matter. It doesn't matter how much money we have, where we live, 
or how many beautiful toys we've collected, none of these can comfort us, console us, cry with us, or love us. Our investment in the people we care about is the only legacy that has the power to endure beyond our lifetime. So what was so special about the top of a castle in a town park or a pop concert where the words at times were dubious? What was special is the relationship, surely. What mattered most is what I wanted to say. I wanted to connect with the rest of my family. I want to say I like being with you. I want to say that I value us doing life together. And so we've created a memory. Now, I eat with Evan every day. He won't remember hardly any of those meals. But maybe, just maybe, in 20 years' time, he might remember that ridiculous day when we sat on top of that castle to eat our sandwiches. And it's not about the castle or even the sandwich, is it? But about something else. Good memories, therefore, become the glue that stick us together. Mark memories. They help us stick as you remember all that you've shared, enjoyed and treasured and valued. Somehow when relationships work, it expresses something of the depth of true life. I reflected on this a little at the launch meal a few weeks ago, and uh, forgive me for the repetition, but not all of you were able to be there. I can remember when I was having uh, a really tough time at work. This is in a previous life, uh, when I had real responsibility. I don't have tough times now. I go hippity-scop from one great cloud of glory uh, to another, working for the church and surrounded by Christians. How could it be any other way? And so back in a previous life, when it was a bit of a stress from time to time, I was going through this uh, difficult period, and I remember, as I said to you, dead simple, nothing complicated, remember one day when my dad, who worked a few miles away, turned up that we might have lunch together that day. We, We didn't do that. I was busy, he was extremely busy, but that day he showed up. Why is it that 20 odd years later, and the more, I remember the day that he showed up? I remember what that said to me. I remember how it made me feel. I remember what it did. But I do not remember what was in our sandwiches. But I can tell you, because I am a Marmite and cheese man. And nothing deviates me from that. You're saying, cheeky little beggars, why hasn't he grown up then? The growing up spread, you'll never grow up. Because there's a disclaimer on the back. So so a little thing, a little thing that broke the routine of our days. I was in a bit of a pickle. He showed up. Made a big, a little thing made a big statement. Made a big statement. The fact that I can remember it, the fact that I'm telling you about it now, the fact that I can feel the emotion of it now, even as I share it with you, little thing makes a big statement. What little things are we doing? Cramming into our lives that are making big statements because we know that these days matter. Kerry uh, first got us into this one month uh, to live back in the autumn and some of you travelled the journey in December uh, through celebrating women and so we tried it first in December Uh, what a hopelessly ridiculous month in a way to live like this the most demanding, the most pressured and so on but in another sense the most poignant how would we live if this was our last Christmas? what would it be like if this was my last December how would I live? it's easy, no sprouts Sorry, no ifs, no buts, no sprouts. But what else? Well, we got to writing that Christmas letter, the one you send round to everybody, making your family sound wonderful without trying to lie too much. And we thought, well, what would it be like if we really had just one month to live? Would we still write the letter? Would we send it around? 
you know, good night, God bless at the end, over and out from Simon and Kerry, what would we say? How would we respond? And I'm looking down the list of people that we would normally send that letter to. There may be people there that we haven't spoken to for 10, maybe 20 years. People that really matter to us. Now that's an integrity gap, isn't it? You've got them too, so I don't feel too alone. Okay, so people that really mattered, people that had shaped us, people that had believed in us, people who were kind enough to say we'd believed in them and we'd shaped them, people who'd who'd carried us when we were right down, people we'd wept with and people we'd celebrated life's great moments with too. There they are, the list. What would we do? Send them a final circular letter. Good night, God bless. And so we decided that we'd pick up the phone and we'd start ringing these people that perhaps we haven't spoken to for many years. And we had some great conversations. And we discovered some great things that had happened that we didn't know about. We discovered some huge sadnesses as well that had passed us by and whatever was going on in their world, we hadn't been there. But the abiding impression is not those things that we discovered, but was how pleased, even delighted, they sounded to hear from us. How much people appreciated the fact that we'd taken the trouble to get in touch. Such a simple thing. We'd picked up the phone and dialed 11 digits and said, hello? Why do people do that when they're talking about speaking on the phone? You know what a phone looks like. So we'd done a very simple thing. And there was a genuineness, a delight, an appreciation that a connection was being made. But in the rush, how come in the rush it had become so hard to dial those 11 digits and say, hello? Hello. And in some cases, we hadn't done it for nearly 20 years. But in those moments when we sense their skip in their spirit that we should call them, and the same is true the other way, the same delight when people have lifted their head above the rush and reached out to us again, We express something that's at the heart of what it means to be human, to really live, because that's the way God made us. Relationships matter, really matter. All around the world, when people are nearing the end of their lives, they do not ask for more files from the office. They do not ask for their certificates to be brought in. They do not ask to have one final look at their degree papers. They don't want their shields or their trophies. But all around the world, we're all the same. When people are coming to the end of their lives, they want to see the people that matter most. And that's been true for some of you in very personal ways. Very poignant ways. Closest family member I've lost is my grandmother. I remember when she was dying at the end of her life. I remember slipping very early out of Ipswich to travel across the country. It was the last time we'd be together. But there was no question, no ifs, no buts. It's time to lift your head over the rush and do what really matters. So all over the world today, people are calling one another to themselves because they know that their days are short. Because relationships matter. 
But we face again that integrity gap that I talked about last week. It's easy to, to, to have values in our hearts that don't find expression in the way that we live. We know in our hearts that they matter. We know in our hearts that to lose our relationships is to lose everything. But how easily our actions can suggest that we can take them and leave them. We can pick relationships up and we can drop them down. We can call people and we can let them go. And we live in a world out there that is utterly mad when it comes to relationships. Knock on all the doors in Ipswich and everybody will know firsthand or very closely the experience of what, how painful it is when relationships break down. And yet, all around our town, all around our country, we behave in our attitudes, in our media, in the way that we work, in our lifestyles, in the things that we do. The relationships, take it or leave it. There are other things more important today. I'll think about that tomorrow. An integrity gap. We say it really matters, but we live sometimes as if it doesn't matter as much as we say it does. And with incredible ease, we pick them up and we let them go. So how do we be different? Maybe you've got that uh, uh, a passage still open in front of you that Barbara read to us. There in verse 1, Jesus knew that the time had come. He showed them the full extent of his love. Having loved them, he showed them the full extent of his love. Today, knowing that our time is not without limit, suddenly becomes, for me and for all of us, the day to show those around us the full extent of our love. How how do we do that? How, How do we move our relationships to the highest mountain peak possible? How do we get our relationships to the highest of highest places? That they might be valued above all others. Suffice our ultimate relationship with God. It doesn't matter, I don't think, this morning, what relationship you would naturally be thinking of. It could be a parent and a child, child and a parent. It could be a business relationship. It could be a friend, maybe a neighbour. It could be a marriage partner. But what do we do in those relationships? That they might move from where they are to the highest of heights. That when all is said and done, when the credits finally roll, I'll know that I lived as though those things mattered most. Does anyone here in Suffolk know what a mountain is? Tricky question. (laughs) Tim, you did that in geography. Mr. Coles. I have to admit your ski slope is pretty high. To get to the summit of a real mountain, you have to go over other mountain peaks along the way. The chances are that as you begin at the bottom of the mountain in the foothills, the first peak you see is nothing like your final destination. True? Hmm... If we're going to reach the heights in our relationships, there are certain lesser mountains we will have to overcome along the way. For example, we will have to overcome the mountain of misunderstanding. You see, every relationship, when it starts off in the foothills, is easy. The sun's shining, there's a slight breeze, it's not very steep, the path is wide, and so on. And that's how relationships go at the beginning. Finally, you found someone who's just like you. Or a business partner who shares your values and your world outlook. Or a marriage partner that seems to be the perfect match and we have so much in common. 
We like pizza. Both of us. It's amazing how much we share in common. And you've got a friend and you say, at last in this complex world and in my complex life, I have found someone who understands me. But it's not too long before the path gets a little steeper, a little narrower, a bit rocky in places, and you hit that mountain of misunderstanding. Worry about those people who've never had an argument. Either they've only known each other a couple of hours, or they're lying, or their relationship is going absolutely nowhere at the bottom of the mountain in the foothills. Sadly though, many bail out at the misunderstanding mountain. In the belief that someone else will understand them better. Hey, they probably won't. You might find someone that will understand the bit that you are currently having misunderstood, but mark my words, there'll be another part of you equally as complex that that new person will have trouble understanding. We're all different. Relationships will always need to be worked at. And we have to work at understanding one another. Nothing's more true in male and female relationships. There are six simple things that men wish women understood. Women, pens to the ready, papers out. This is important. Number one, women, if something we said could be interpreted in two ways, and one of those ways makes you sad or angry, we always meant the other way. Number two, ladies, when we both have somewhere to go together, we really don't mind what you wear. Really. And the third simple thing that men wish women understood is how to work the toilet seat. When it's up, don't get angry or cross or complain. We can show you how to put it down. And so it goes on. Christopher Columbus didn't uh, need directions and neither do we. The fifth simple thing men wish women understood is if it itches, we will scratch it. It's okay. We don't mind. Neither should you. And finally, we're not mind readers. The fact that we cannot read your mind is not proof of how little we care about you. There are plenty of other things we'll do to show how little we care, but the fact we cannot read your mind is not one of those things. Many relationships fail on the mountain of misunderstanding and they never get anywhere near the real peaks. They settle for walking around the foothills. Secondly, the mountain of me first. Hey, we're selfish by nature, aren't we? We instinctively look out for our own interests. Such is the strength of our selfishness that society all of the time is creating rules to protect us one from another because we're inherently selfish. What are most arguments about? They're about me first. And thirdly, the mountain of mistakes. People will hurt you. People will disappoint you. People will upset you. And there will be times when it's right to be angry. Properly angry. Angry's probably never killed a relationship, but bitterness and resentment can kill it in an afternoon. Will you love someone through their mistakes? Will you love someone, though me first sometimes comes to the fore? Will you love someone? Will you cling to them together on that mountain of misunderstanding? We're going to stay there together till we get to the top. No wonder somebody said relationships are not for wimps. So what are the principles that can help us to overcome these mountains that we might soar to the heights in our relationships? In fact, 
It's probably a better question than what are the principles, because at the end of the day, I don't need principles. I need some power, don't you? I don't, I don't just need to be told what I should do. In my saner moments, I can suss that. What I really need is power. And these principles come from the Son of God Himself, who gives us the power to live this way, because He lived that way. Number one, power to accept. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. To accept someone, I have to move from focusing on changing them to understanding them. To see life from their perspective. Acceptance is to stop trying to change and to start trying to cherish. We all need cherishing. We're created that way. It's the way God made us. Six or 60, we need to be cherished. 16 or 36, we need to be cherished. And often the brusker we become and the harder our heart becomes, the greater our need for someone to cherish us. When we're trying to change someone, when we're trying to focus uh, on their, what are we doing? We're focusing on ourselves as we're trying to change them. It's about what I want. It's about what I need from them. It's about what I can get. It's about how they can conform to the way I think things should be. And Jesus just accepted people and got into trouble for it. That was what the religious freaks couldn't understand. Why did he just love people so much that he accepted them as they were. True, he loved them enough not to leave them that way, but he didn't say to anyone, do X, Y, and Z, and then I'll accept you, then I'll love you, then we'll have lunch together, then we'll do this, that, or the other. Loving first. That's really hard, isn't it? Yes, Simon, that's really hard. I'll answer my own question. Really hard. I don't need someone to tell me, accept more people. I need the power to accept more people. Secondly, power to act. Power to accept, power to act. Jesus demonstrated an incredible power to act in his relationships. To have, have it open, page uh, uh, 1081, where we read from some moments uh, ago. And uh, verse 2, you can see there, uh, of John uh, chapter 13, verse 2, they get to the evening meal. And nobody has had the consideration, the consideration to wash each other's feet. Or if they've considered it, they've pushed it to the back of their minds, I'm not washing their feet, someone else ought to be doing that for me. So we read these incredible words at verse 4. So he, Jesus, got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. Twelve hours later, he would be hanging on a cross. If anyone needed to show him a little consideration, to give him a little break, to give him just a little little bit of space in that evening meal, it was Jesus who needed that. Yet he got up and washed their feet. I need power to consider other people's needs like that. Because it's too easy for me to think about what's stressing me. It put myself in, in the Jesus analogy. It's too easy for Jesus. We might say, he, well, bless him, he's thinking about the cross. We can't possibly expect him to think about anyone else. He's got enough problem of his own. Think of the power that he chose to consider their minute need in the face of his huge need. I need that power. And talk about creating a memory... Talk about leaving a legacy. They would never forget, would they, that day he washed their feet? 
When we put someone else first, even in a small thing, it can make a big difference. Here was a small act, the washing of feet, relatively, making a big difference. When we show consideration, its impact goes way beyond the act itself. The difference it made to those disciples was far, far bigger than the fact they simply had clean feet. Long after their feet became dirty again, they would remember those moments, wouldn't they? When they looked up into the eyes of their Saviour, it was with a towel around his waist washing their feet. I need power to show that kind of consideration because relationships matter. Secondly, Jesus acted with cooperation. Move on a little bit and pick it up at verse 15. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. An example of cooperating. He served even though he was the master. The opposite of cooperating is competing. If anyone in that room that night could have competed, it was Jesus. I'm bigger than you. I'm better than you. I'll still be around long after you've gone. Bully for you. Jesus, if anybody could have asserted their dominance in that situation, uh, at any kind of level, it was Jesus. Yet he chose, instead of competing, to cooperate. And what a profound difference that made. I wonder, are there some relationships that, that you're in right now where actually you're competing more than cooperating? You can be in a marriage where one-upmanship is always rising to the fore. We're trying to compete with each other, proving that somehow we're better, we're more right, we're more this, we're more that. We get into criticising and belittling. What becomes important is, am I winning in this relationship competition? And here we see Jesus, who had the power to act, chose not to compete, but to cooperate in such an incredible way. Maybe we've been competing too much. And thirdly, commitment. Verse 18, I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I've chosen, but there is to fulfill a scripture. He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Commitment says, I'm going to do this even if I'm going to get nothing back in return. Think about what Jesus was doing. He knew they could give nothing back. If he washed their feet in that moment as a symbol that he was about to to wash their lives by dying on the cross, there was nothing they could give him back. He was doing something that they could never, ever possibly hope of repaying. And then he came to Judas, who not only would never, ever possibly repay, but instead would betray at the most heartfelt level. There's something incredibly powerful to do something for somebody that can never return the favour. To do something where you cannot possibly have in the back of your mind, maybe one day I'll get something back for this. You know, you, you do something for someone and you think, well, one day they'll do something for me. You're kind to someone, you think, well, maybe one day they'll, they'll return the favour. But the real grace is to do something knowing that nothing can come back. The power to act, knowing nothing is in it for me. Suffice the knowledge that relationships are at the heart of what life is about, and I cannot give my life to something that matters more. So we need the power to accept, the power to act, and thirdly and finally, the power to forgive. 
In the heart of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, uh, teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts, forgive us our sins, as we also forgive our debtors, or as we used to pray, as we also forgive those who have sinned against us. Forgiveness is the biggest thing. We think, by storing up bitterness and resentment in our hearts towards someone, that somehow we're getting back at them. Somehow I'm getting even with those who've hurt us. But the only person we're hurting is ourselves. It struck me on Friday, I think it was Friday morning, it might have been Thursday morning, uh, Friday morning on the radio, they were interviewing Arthur Scargill, uh, the, the miners' strike fame some 25 years ago. And they introduced him by saying, Arthur Scargill, who is as angry 25 years later as he ever was. I'm glad I didn't spend Christmas with him. <laughs> Who's he been hurting all these years? Who are the people that have suffered the most? Pray for Mrs. Scargill, I thought, if there is one. And yet somehow by holding on to our anger we think we're punishing everybody else and we're making it hard for everybody else and we're, we're showing everybody else and we're proving it to everybody else and we're just going down and down and down and down um, until people are just, whoa, one angry bunny. One angry bunny. George Herbert was right. He who cannot forgive others destroys the bridge over which he himself must pass. Anyway, it was Jesus that made forgiveness central. He taught us to pray like that. And then at the end of his teaching on prayer, he said, just in case you've missed the main deal here. Verse 9 of Matthew 6. If you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. As familiar as those words are, how often have we lived in our relationships as if they're true? Do I really want God to forgive me at the same level of forgiveness that I extend to others? No. No. And it's funny, isn't it? We expect God to forgive. We almost demand that God should forgive. We become casual about it. God, of course you'll forgive me just because that's what God does. And we take it for granted. It's so easy to say we're sorry to God, not anxious about whether he'll forgive or not, because we know that he will. And yet when it comes to our relationships, it can be so, so different. The aching hurt, the depth of pain, the betrayal, the disappointment. Forgiveness so, so difficult to really, truly give. But here, mercifully, is not just the challenge but also the capacity. You see, my capacity to forgive is related directly to my awareness of how much I've been forgiven. I will never be able to extend the forgiveness to others that I might know in my head I should unless I have understood in both my head and my heart how much God has for <coughs> excuse me, forgiven me. How much God paid the price <clears throat> to forgive me. If we understood it in greater measure, then our ability to forgive others would increase, I think, exponentially. Jesus told a story, didn't he? To illustrate the point. He said the story is simple. There was a king who was owed loads of money. Far more money than the subject could ever possibly 
repay. Does that sound familiar? Isn't there a king that I owe far more than I could ever repay? So suddenly I'm tuned in. Whoa, I understand this story. I understand this could be me. I am that subject. There is a king and I do owe that much. Incredibly, unbelievably, Jesus says in the story, the king forgives him, lets him go, he's free. But Jesus says, watch this, <clears throat> watch this subject as he leaves the king's presence and goes out into the street. Follow him. Watch what he does. Watch how he behaves. And Jesus says this, instead of going and rejoicing, instead of celebrating in his newfound freedom, he finds a man who owed him just a fiver. It was nothing. Absolutely a piddly little amount of money compared to this huge amount of money he'd just been forgiven. But he grabs this man by the neck who owes him this small amount of money. Half kills him to get that few pounds back. And Jesus' point is this, why? Why? Why after being forgiven all of that stuff would he behave like that? Why would he do it? He doesn't need it anymore. He's been forgiven. Why ruin that man's day as well? Jesus' point is this, he's acting like he himself has not been forgiven. He's acting that he still has to pay this great debt and if only he can go around to all those other people that owe him money and strangle them half to death and get that money back, somehow, some way, he'll be able to repay. Of course, he'll never be able to repay, but he cannot believe he's forgiven. If only he can collect all these debts, then one day maybe he can. He's acting like he's never been forgiven. And every time we hold something against someone else, we're acting like God is still holding stuff against us. And he isn't. Every time we throttle someone for what we, what we think they owe us, a little tiny amount compared to the enormity of what we ourselves have been forgiven. Every time we, we grab them around the neck and hold them accountable for their wrong towards us because we're hurt and we're angry and we're this and we're that and we justify it with so many clever words. But every time we've got their hands, our hands around somebody else's neck, not willing to let them go, we're saying to God, it's as if you still haven't forgiven me. It's as if you're still holding on to things in my life. And we deny the truth of the gospel and we rob ourselves of the power of God's love and we stay locked in a prison that God has already set us free from. Wow. Every time I say I'm not going to forgive, I'm too angry about this. It's like I'm saying to God, you haven't forgiven me. See, there is no other place. There is no better place to learn. There is no better place to receive all that it means to love completely than to get outside the city, get up the hill as the darkness closed in and look into the young man hanging on a cross who need not be there. A young man who should not have been there. A man who chose to be there. And see what loving completely really means. And from that place flows the power for me to love in a way I cannot by myself. Paul put it like this. There you see the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. People mock it. 
But to us who are being saved, there the cross, the power of God to live right. I need that power to save me, don't you? I need that power to save me, to love completely. Let's pray.